Luke chapter 14 tonight. Let's begin reading at verse number 25. Luke chapter 14, verse number 25. The Bible says that there went great multitudes with him, with Jesus. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether you have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing the midweek prayer meeting is. I pray that you'd encourage us. I pray that you would instruct us, Lord, and I pray that you would uh, draw us closer unto you, Lord. Expose the areas of our life that may be lacking, things that we may have slacked on, things that we may have lessened our commitment in. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would take his divine finger and, and place it right on those areas of our life. Shine the precious light of your word into our lives and show us areas where we need to draw closer unto you, need to uh, surrender more unto you, need to commit more unto you. Father, we know that only through that most deep and personal and intimate work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in our lives will we be helped, will we be blessed, and will we be better. Lord, we love you, we thank you for your Word, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The passage that we have read tonight begins with a statement about the ministry of the Lord Jesus. It says in verse 25 that there went great multitudes with Him. You study the ministry of the Lord Jesus, you find that it it roughly divides itself into three sections corresponding uh, overall to the three years of the Lord Jesus' public ministry. The first was a year of revelation. What I mean by that is he was revealing to society who he was and what he could do. Now, that's not to suggest that every truth to be known about the Lord Jesus was learned in that first year, but it is to say that that was the period of time in which he in the minds of men, rose from the obscurity of being a carpenter in Nazareth to being a prophet, to being a preacher, to being uh, the Messiah. So that was the year of revelation. That was followed by the year of reception, when men flocked unto him and, and heard what he had to say. And, and it, it was sort of the end thing to be following Jesus and listening to what Jesus had to say. He was well received amongst the uh, the common man. And, and for a period of time, there were uh, vast crowds that would throng about him and would gather to hear his teaching. And then, of course, the Lord's uh, uh, earthly ministry ends with his year of rejection, in which the Bible tells us in John chapter 6, from that point onwards, there were many that turned away from him, that went back from him, wouldn't walk with him anymore. And you'll find that the closer he gets to Calvary, the smaller that group gets in that year of rejection. It's in that second year, this year of reception, that the passage that we've read tonight takes place. It was a time when it was popular 
to be going out into the wilderness and listening to the Lord Jesus. It was popular to be part of that crowd that the Bible uses the term multitudes. And I don't think it is at all out of question to say not only thousands, but tens of thousands of people. We see that by the feeding of the 5,000. I'd remind you that 5,000 was just the men, not their wives and their children. Tens of thousands of people going out into the countryside, following the Lord Jesus, hearing what He had to say. And here in our passage tonight, the Lord Jesus does something very interesting. Something that is out of keeping with modern day celebrity evangelism. Something that's out of keeping with the modern day sort of corporatist movement amongst uh, Christianity. Instead of Him trying to sell them on the latest, greatest, easiest, smoothest version of Christianity that could possibly be presented, He turns and looks at this vast multitude of people. And He begins to explain and detail to them what it is really going to mean if they want to follow Him with more than just their feet. If they want to follow Him in faith. And He makes an astounding statement three times in the passage. I'm sure you noticed it already. In verse number 26, He says, If any man come to Me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters and in-laws... No, I don't say that there. But it says, Yea, and his own life also, he cannot be My disciple. Cannot be My disciple. Verse 27, he echoes it again. He says, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, he says it once more. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Three times the Lord Jesus draws a line in the sand. And he says, unless you're willing to accept certain things about how following me is going to change your life, you will never truly follow me. It's interesting not only what he did say, but what he did not say. I think we could detail it very simply by noticing this. He did not say you will not be my disciple. In other words, we could say it this way. He did not question their commitment. He didn't say you don't want to follow me. There's a whole lot of people that say they want to follow the Lord Jesus until they find out what following the Lord Jesus really means. In the ministry of the Lord Jesus at this period of time, he had tens of thousands of people that every one of them, if he had took a poll and said, do you want to follow me? Do you want to follow me? Do you want to follow me? They would have all answered yes. For that's what they physically were doing. They were following him out into the wilderness. The group of people that the Lord Jesus feeds, they follow him to such an extent that the Lord says, if I don't feed them, they'll perish out here in the wilderness. He did not doubt their commitment. The sincerity of their statement. He says, I know that you really mean it when you say you want to follow me. I hope it could be said about all of us that we want to follow Jesus. I will tell you this. We're certainly not going to follow him if we don't even want to follow him. Much of what is broken in our lives can really be sourced in this one sad commentary. We don't want to follow him closer than we're following him. If we want him, you know, the Bible tells us this in the book of James, draw nigh to God. And He'll draw nigh unto you. That tells me this. And this is a smiting statement. It pricks my heart. And I trust it will yours as well. Every single one of us, we have as much of Christ as we want. As much of God as we want. We have as much of Bible Christianity as we want. God has placed the ball in our court. And He has said, if you want to be close to me, then I will be close to you. So this group of people, they, they had a desire. And the Lord does not dismiss that. And He doesn't. Doubt that. He didn't question their commitment. He said, you know, you will not do this. You are not desirous to do this. But he also didn't say this. He didn't say you should not be my disciple. Uh, there are some people in life that 
are not cut out for the things they do. There are certain things, listen, I'm never going to be an NBA star. That ship has already sailed for me. Somebody say amen to that. Well, if you won't say it, I will. Amen. I mean, you know, uh, there, there are certain things that I just, I should not do. It's it's beyond my ability. You know, I mean, I, I, I pick a guitar a little bit. And sometimes if there's nobody else uh, to do it, I'll get up and sing. But you're not going to see me on the TV on one of these superstar shows belting out some song. Uh, if, if I got up there, they would say, not only uh, can you not, but you should not, Mr. Weber. Uh, we would prefer if you didn't. Uh, in other words, he doesn't say you shouldn't be my disciple as though it would be a bad decision or as though they were ill-equipped to be his disciple. We could say it this way. He didn't question their commitment, but he also did not question their capability. He didn't say, I'm sorry, this is outside of your wheelhouse. He didn't say, I'm sorry, you just don't have what it takes. Because here's a simple truth we all need to hear well tonight. Every one of us, through the Lord Jesus, has what it takes to follow Christ. I've said this verse so many times, it's not a life verse, but it sure shows up a lot in my life that He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. None of us are unequipped to do the work God has called us to do. We can all do it if we choose to do it. And there's none of us that will be able to stand before God and say, I wanted to follow you, but I just was not able to. I didn't have the capability to. For God has in the bankruptcy of our ability shown forth His sufficiency. And if we're just willing, and if we'll follow Him, He'll make up the difference. Now listen, if this is a talent contest, go ahead and count me out, alright? I think we all understand this thing of following Christ does not come down to talents or abilities. He did not question their capabilities. So what exactly is He questioning? Well, He doesn't say that they will not be His disciples. He doesn't say they should not be His disciples. But rather, He lists some things that it takes to be a disciple, and he says, if you won't do these things, you cannot be my disciple. In other words, we notice two things about this. One, it is non-negotiable. These are not things that we can say, well, I'll do part of this, but not do this other part, and I'll still be faithful following Jesus. No, if we won't do these things, we can't be his disciple. It's an impossibility for us to follow him the way he needs and deserves to be followed if we'll not do these very things. But it's interesting in the context of him disclosing this to them. I think we could say it this way. He didn't question their commitment. He didn't question their capability. He brought into question their comprehension. He said to them, do you really know what it's going to be like to follow me? I know that you want to. I know that you can do it. But do you really know? And if you knew what it would take, would you still be desirous to do that? Reminds me of James and John coming to the Lord Jesus and asking to be seated uh, in His kingdom at His right hand and at His left. And the Lord looks at him and says to, to give unto you the, the, the person, you know, the place at my right hand and left. It's not mine to give. Can you drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of? And they just sort of answered back. They said, yeah, we can. Yeah, we can. Did they really understand what that meant? That cup was Calvary. Did they really understand all that that meant? And of course, the Lord Jesus answers back and says, you will indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. But they didn't understand. I wonder how often some of y'all that are ex-military can say amen to this. Have you signed up for something that you didn't know what you was getting into? 
He doubts their comprehension. He says, do you really know what it's going to be like? And then he details for them four truths that I want you to notice with me tonight. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. This is what it takes to be a disciple of Christ. If any one of these things are out of order in your life, now let me say this. I'm thankful, and I, I think Peter's a good example of this. I'm thankful you can be following him one second, failing him the next, forgiven after that, and following him again. If I had to have a perfect track record, you'd just have to sign me out. And there's probably people in this room that would say, well, I've followed him before, but I've noticed something lacking in my life. There's not the passion, the zeal, the commitment that there once was. Consider your life and ask yourself, has one of these things fallen short in your life? Notice these four thoughts and we'll be done tonight. The first thing he says is in verse 26. He says, if any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters. Yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. The first thing we see here is a word about connections. Now, you've probably heard uh, preachers say this, and it's true. I'll echo it along with them tonight, that the hate that's being described here is comparative. It is a relative hate. And the reason we know that is because Though we could maybe imagine the Lord saying you gotta hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brethren, your sisters. How could he say we have to hate our own life? Is he urging or advocating us to take our own life or do us some kind of self-harm? I think anybody with a King James Bible and a clear thought in their head can say that the Lord Jesus is not encouraging us to do that. Nor is he encouraging us to harbor any malice or ill intent towards any of these people. But what he is saying is this, that your love of me must be so superlative, so surpassing the love that you have, that by comparison, a person would look at it and think you don't care at all about those things, that you despise them, that relative to your love of me, they carry no weight and no influence. Can I distill this down to a basic, simple statement? We'll say it and then move on. Uh, we have to be careful about earthly connections. God doesn't begrudge a man having a father. He's got a heavenly father. Uh, he had Joseph, who was not his father, but was a fatherly influence in his life. Uh, God doesn't begrudge us having a mother. Uh, God doesn't begrudge a man having a wife and, and, and people having children and brethren and sisters. Uh, most of these things, of course, the Lord Jesus was not married, but certainly he had earthly connections. He had brethren. He had family. Although it would be interesting to note that uh, every time that the Lord Jesus interacts with his blood family in his earthly ministry, they were always a hindrance to him. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I, I pastor a lot of my family and I praise the Lord for it. I'm thankful. I hear pastors that complain about it sometimes. They'll say, oh, I hate pastoring my family. I love pastoring my family. But my family, your family, anyone's family, we cannot let them take the place of the preeminence of the Lord Jesus in our life. We have to make sure, and I think the reason that the, the Lord Jesus shines a light on these relationships is because of the potency of them, because of how important they are. He's not advocating that we write out of our life our mother, mother or father or wife or children or brethren. That would be in direct contravention to other places in Scripture when the Bible says if a man doesn't take care of his own family, he's worse than an infidel. He's denied the faith. Hey, listen, husbands are commanded to love their wives. He's not saying anything contradictory uh, to anything else in Scripture here, but what he is saying is you have to be careful about those earthly relationships because they run so deep and they are so strong that if we are not careful, we will allow them to be excuses or crutches that we lean upon and reasons as to why we cannot serve the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We need to make sure that whatever connections, and by the way, he speaks of familial relationships, but we could talk about a number of things. We could talk about friendships. We could talk about financial obligations and goals that we have in our life. I'm saying this, if you make up your mind to serve Jesus Christ, you're going to find that everywhere around you there will be things that try to tether you down and pull you away from that commitment. There will always be something. Always be something. You've heard me say this before when we're coming into revival meetings. You're going to have to be purpose, uh, be there on purpose because the devil will make sure you're not there by accident. He will always give you an excuse to not serve the Lord. It's something he's never short upon. He won't give you peace. He won't give you happiness. He won't give you true contentment. He won't give you righteousness. He won't give you true wisdom. But he will always give you an excuse as to why there is something more important than the work of the Lord. We have to be careful about these connections that we have. And then in verse 27, he says this, Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So we have a word about connections. And we have to be careful lest earthly connections distract us from serving the Lord. Whatever obligations those may be, and whatever merit they may hold, we have to make sure that they don't displace the Lord Jesus in our affections and loyalty. But then he sort of gives us a little idea about how we do that in verse 27, because we have a word about the cross. He says you've got to bear your cross. We had an evangelist while back preached on this very thing, and he made note of the fact that the things that we often call our crosses in life are not the things that the Lord Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about bad things in our life, burdens in our life. He's not talking about sickness or trial or suffering. But when the Lord Jesus talked about the cross, He was talking about self-mortification. He was talking about putting to death self, our ambitions. He both answers the naturally puzzling statement that He had just made in verse 26, but also discloses to us one of the prerequisites of discipleship. We've got to learn to die to self. You're never going to follow Jesus while you're going your own direction. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, maybe me and Jesus can just sort of travel on the same train headed the same direction. No, your flesh will make sure that never happens. The only way you'll follow him is if you make up your mind that he is more important than you are, that what he wants is more important than what you want, that his desire for your life is more important and is better for you than your own desire for your life. Now, one of the things that I love about the Lord is he's not a petty tyrant. He does not begrudge us things that we enjoy just because we enjoy them. But we do need to understand that there is a certain polarizing nature between our flesh and what it desires and the things of God. We have to recognize that. If we develop this sort of blindness that is so prevalent in modern day Christianity that God's will is always what I want. God's will is always what I want. It's what the name it and claim it crowd preaches. That you can just command God about like He's your cosmic butler because what you want is always sanctified, it's always great, it's always glorious, and God's job is just to help you be so awesome. It's not the, it's not the case. The fact is, if we're going to follow Him, we've got to make our mind up that His direction is more important than our direction. And that has real world implications for the decisions you make in your life. As long as there is a negotiation between your will and God's will, your will will always win. As long as you view it as something where you give a little and He gives a little, I'm sorry to tell you this, but God doesn't give a little. If we'll give everything to Him, He'll give more to us than we could ever imagine. But God's not, hey listen, He's not in the negotiation business. We have to be willing to mortify self. Whosoever doth not bear His cross 
and come after me cannot be my disciple. And I would say if you won't bear your cross, meaning to, to mortify self, as Paul said, die daily, then you won't come after him. Pretty soon you'll be going your own direction. He gives a word about the cross. And then in verse number 28, he sort of, verse 28 through 33, he gives three examples, but they really all sort of, they hit on different aspects of a similar truth. He says in verse 28, For which of you, intending to build a tower, setteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether ye have sufficient to finish? In other words, he gives us a word here, not only about connections and the cross, but about the cost of following Him. It will cost you some things to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea that uh, it is always a some positive thing in our life as far as as accruing influence and prosperity and 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 pleasure. I'm sorry, that's not Bible Christianity. There are some things if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to give up in your life. Some things you can't have if you're going to follow Him. What are some things He warned against? Well, in verse 28, He talks about counting the cost. He describes this man that sits down to build a tower, but foolishly He does not take into account exactly what it's going to cost Him. What's going to happen to that person? In verse 29 it says, Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. In other words, he says, You better make sure you know what this really means to follow me. You better understand that there are some things I'm going to take from you if you're going to follow me. Oh, there'll be a lot I'll give to you as well. But there are some things, things that are harmful to the testimony of the Lord Jesus. After all, that's the spirit of what he's talking about. He doesn't say that the great tragedy is that the building doesn't get built. He says the great tragedy is men stand back and mock the foolishness of that person. Can I just make a little bit of an application here and then then I'll move on? The building will get built. He'll find somebody to finish the tower. But the damage that's done through people looking and seeing a quitter, someone that walks away from their commitment to the Lord, somebody that by their decision to give up on Christ uh, proclaims to the world that he's not worth going the distance for, that damage is irreparable. He talks about counting the cost. And then in verse 31, he, he sort of changes gears. He says, or what king going to make war against another king setteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. Now here in a moment, he's going to talk about what you do when you realize you don't have the proper forces. But if we were to just in a nutshell describe what he is encouraging them to do, we could use this phrase, surveying your strength. He says, if two men go out to battle, one of the basic, foundational, fundamental things they'll do is they'll figure out whether they've really got what it takes to whoop the other guy. He says there's some options if you don't. And he talks about sending an ambassador, waving the white flag, sending for a peace treaty. But he says one of the basic things a person does when they set about doing something is they ask themselves, not just do I have the funds to do it, but do I have the force to do it? In other words, I would say in your life and mine, if we're going to be a disciple of Christ, we have to be honest with ourselves about our weaknesses. The person that's described here is not the man that has 20,000. It's the man that only has 10,000. It's not the man with the upper hand. It's the man without the ability. And he says if he's going to be uh, successful in this endeavor in any way, he's got to be honest with himself about his inability to fight the battle in front of him. I'd say if we're going to be a disciple of Christ, we have to be honest about our inability to be a disciple of Christ. 
Now, you're going to say, well, preacher, you just said anybody can do it. Everybody can do it. Well, that's true, but not in of our own strength. A great many people, I've seen this happen, and I bet you have too. A great many people get stirred up in their heart and soul, make a bunch of promises to God, fall and weep on an altar, and get up and then walk out those doors to live life in their own strength. Only to find themselves discouraged and depressed and disheartened that they were unable to do it. Well, the problem was not that they made a commitment to God. The problem was in that, that commitment was predicated on a lie, on their own ability, on their flesh. They looked and weren't honest about the real strength that they had. If you're going to be a disciple of Christ, you have to recognize that you need Him. You can't do it in and of yourself. And then in verse number 32, he says something interesting. If he doesn't have the strength, here's what he can do. Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. Now, there's two applications we can make here. In other words, this king, he looks at it and says, I don't have the strength, so I'm going to send news ahead to make sure that everything works out all right. Let me just let me just switch gears for a moment and say this. When we realize our own weakness and inability, we don't send an ambassador to the opposing force. We send word up to heaven for reinforcements for the strength that we need. But notice the emphasis here in verse 32. While the other is yet a great way off. Why does he emphasize that? He's talking about the prudence of this king in planning the battle. And what he's saying is this. He does not wait till the very last second to sue for peace. Rather, when there's plenty of time, he sends ahead the ambassage to make sure there'll be time for it to get there, time for it to be negotiated, time for it to return back, and him to get counsel and him to get instruction. In other words, the emphasis here is on telling the time. Recognizing how much time do I really have to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. I found that people that think they have a lot of time rarely do anything. There is a sense of urgency, and this is part of the reason I think God created humanity on this sort of moving continuum of time. I mean, time's always ticking away. You have less time now than you had before you walked in. We're constantly marching forward in this course and path of time. And I think one of the reasons for that, and and I'm sure there's a, a million reasons we could get real metaphysical about, But one of the things that it ought to produce in us is a sense of urgency. That we're not going to say today or tomorrow. We're going to say right now. We're not going to put it off to another day because we do not know how much time we may have left. And I found that people whose perspective on on getting serious about God are always someday, never find that day. It's always somewhere off in the future. There's always some sort of fantasy set of, of, of conditions that has to be met. And one day, they say, one day, they say, and pretty soon they don't have another day. They've let all of them slip by. So he gives a word about the cost. And then finally, and I'm done tonight, look at verse 34. This isn't a break from from the theme and thought, but it's almost as though it is a summary of what he's been saying. Verse 34, the Lord says, salt is good. Now, you can imagine listening to this discourse from Lord Jesus. And everything he said has had a certain sort of a, a certain continuity to it. You know, he's talking about a man following him and forsaking his his family as far as not putting them in a place of preeminence above the Lord. He's talked about bearing his cross. Well, I can understand that. We've got to mortify ourselves. He's talked about counting the cost, surveying your strength, telling the time. I mean, just getting serious about serving God. Then all of a sudden, he starts talking about salt. What an unusual thing that is for the Lord to introduce. 
at this stage in the conversation. But now let's stop and think about the overall meaning of what he says. Salt is good. I believe that. Let me just say I agree with my King James Bible there. Salt is good. But if the salt have lost his savor, if there's no flavor to it, if it doesn't have anything to add or anything to change or anything to develop as far as taste and profile, if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? You can take salt that has no flavor to it. You can bury your food in it, but it will not make a difference. He says it is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. It's almost as though he looks at this big teeming mass of humanity in front of him and sees all these people that say they want to follow him. But the problem is they're not living any differently than the other people that are around them. There's a lot of them. Praise the Lord for that. But the trouble is none of them are any different than the rest of the crowd that they run with. And so the Lord gives us a word about conformity. And he basically says two things about it. It, it could be summarized in him saying salt is worthless if it ain't salty. It only changes things by changing things. It cannot blend or maintain a status quo. You don't put salt on your food to keep it tasting the same. You put it on your food so that it'll taste different. And he says, likewise, the reason I'm calling you to discipleship is not so that you can maintain stability in society and protect and guard jealously the status quo. He says, I have called you to discipleship to change the dish that you're added to, to transform the world that you're living in. He says, if you will not comfort yourself and familiarize yourself with this idea of being different, not just different in a sort of cloistered personal way. I mean, we're all different. Somebody say amen to that. But different in a way that changes the environment that you're in. He makes two damning statements about that. Notice the first. The first is he said, if salt does not have any flavor to it, then it is fruitless in its life. We could say it this way. The Lord says it's worse than dirt. Verse 35, it's neither fit for the land. I like going to the beach. I'm sorry, I don't go to the beach. I go to the ocean. Carnal people go to the beach. Spiritual people go to the ocean. I, I like going to the ocean. We typically do it, you know, every other year. And uh, and I love it. You know, one of the things I hate worse than anything, though, is coming back and all that sand being everywhere in your car. One of the things I hate, I hate, I, I know people have these romantic ideas about taking long walks on the beach. Can I tell you, I hate walking on dry sand. It, 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 you can break an ankle that way. Every Every time you take a step, it's not solid underfoot. You know what it does? It just moves and shifts with wherever the pressure is that's applied. It's not fit for something to walk on. When we have large swaths of land that have nothing but sand, you know what we call those places? Deserts. And we avoid them. Nothing grows there. It's not stable. It has no life intrinsic within it. Whereas dirt, having been moved on by the Holy Spirit in Genesis Chapter number one has a life-giving ability. You can take a dead seed that if you sat it on your nightstand, it would never do anything, but you can take it and put it in the dirt with a little water, a little sunshine. It'll spring to life and all of a sudden something will be created there. But if you take that same seed and plant it in sand, it won't do anything. There's got to be a certain measure of structure, a certain measure of resistance, a certain measure of the ability to retain the water around it, to nurture it, to give it 
the properties it needs. In other words, it can't produce anything. You know, the problem with Christianity that's culture is it it doesn't change anything. Cultural Christianity. Christianity that is just meant to maintain a sort of cultural status quo and is not meant to be transformative in nature. You know the problem with it? It's not transformative in nature. doesn't produce anything. And because of that, it's literally worse than dirt. Worse than dirt. And then he makes a second statement. He says not only is it worse than dirt, he says it's neither fit for the land. I mean, it was it was literally a and has been throughout history a strategy of total warfare to salt people's land so that nothing could grow. He says not only is it neither fit for the land, he says nor yet for the dunghill. Now, what does he mean by dunghill? We use the terminology today of compost, right? A place where you take refuse and and put it and then the natural processes of decomposition begin to break it down and then it is something that if it's added to a garden or added to a crop it can encourage and engender and nurture growth within it in fact he says not only is it worse than dirt he says it's worse than dung not only does it not produce anything by giving life it also doesn't produce anything by giving way to death as it decomposes it doesn't change anything around it. It doesn't even it doesn't even rescue and sort of uh, consolidate what good qualities might have existed in it, so that it can be drawn out and benefit someone else. You know the great tragedy of mediocre Christianity? It serves neither as a model nor as a cautionary tale. It doesn't serve to encourage people, and it doesn't serve to caution people. Instead, it just floats along at the same pace that everything else is, it blends in to the crowd. It's fit for neither the dirt nor the dunghill. It is literally worthless in nature. The time that the Lord Jesus spoke this, salt was one of the great commodities of the world. If a person had salt, they were a wealthy person. But all of that wealth was vested in its ability to change whatever it was added to. And in a fitting way, the Lord Jesus looks at these people that say they want to be disciples And says to them, you want to be my disciple, that's good. I'm glad of that. But you understand what it takes to be my disciple. And you understand that if you'll not be my disciple in such a way that changes you and changes the lives of other people around you, you'd be better off just staying at the house. Another illustration of this is in Revelation chapter 3 in the Laodicean church. Whenever God says you're neither hot nor you're cold, you're lukewarm, and I just want to spew you out. Our problem is not that we've grown cold. Our problem is we're lukewarm. We're we're positing that we want to be a disciple of Christ, but we're unwilling to get honest about what it takes and really count the cost and pay the price that it takes to be a disciple of Christ. I hope we'll look at our lives tonight and ask ourselves, is there any of these areas where I've balked at God, where I've held back, where I've not been willing to follow Him fully? Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. I want to give you an opportunity if God spoke to your heart to meet him at this altar and to allow him to have his will and way in your heart and your life. Don't argue with him. Don't make excuses to him. Just go ahead and be honest with him. He already knows your heart. He knows your life. You might as well be honest with him. So meet him down at this altar and pour your heart out to him. Be honest and transparent with him so that we can get the kind of help that we need. Father, bless this invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name.